Welcome to From the Booth, the weekly podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. I'm Chip Oscarson, one of the co-directors for International Cinema. This is our Week in Review episode in which we discuss the films that just played at International Cinema. We're still in the middle of the COVID-19 shutdown, but International Cinema has continued its program through a limited streaming format. If you haven't already signed up to get access to IC streaming films, go to our website at ic.byu.edu for more information. Today, we're going to be discussing the films that showed as part of our virtual program between the 1st and the 4th of April. Because these films have already played, we'll be talking about them with no spoiler alerts, so feel free to use the time codes in the program notes if you need to skip forward in the conversation to preserve any crucial plot points for yourself. The films that we're going to be talking about today include Shadow, a highly stylized Mandarin-language martial arts or wuxia film from 2019 by director Zhang Yimou. Hunt for the Wilder People, an English-language comedy from 2016 set in the New Zealand bush by Taiki Waititi. And finally, Ramen Heads, a Japanese-language documentary by director Shigo Koki about ramen like you've never seen it before. To help me discuss Shadow, where we'll start today, we have with us uh, David Dewey Walter. He is a graduate student in the Comparative Studies program and an employee, longtime employee of international cinema. Dewey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Get us started a little bit here with this film. This is a uh, one of China's best-known directors. What's this film about, and what's special about it? Yeah, so Zhang Yimou is, as you said, is one of China's most well-known directors, mainland China, that is. And um, he's known for doing two different types of films. First, he does his historical dramas. Some of these would include things like Raise the Red Lantern, or To Live, or some couple of his famous ones. But what he also does is these hyper-stylized action films, these wuxia period pieces. So Shadow is his most recent one, and it takes a huge different approach to stylization from his other movies. Zhang Yimou is really known as being one of the most colorful directors internationally, but Shadow is ostensibly a black and white film now shot on color stock right or (laughs) yes it's shot in color and there's digital manipulation to desaturize the color but most of the set and the costume is all created just in grayscale yeah so the film plot wise is kind of a play on like a chess game right or a or a game of go. Mm-hmm. And so it's about these two these two generals, right? There's the king and then there's the commander, and they are trying to vie for power, but to do so they send out these pawns, right? Um, and the different people get used as pawns throughout the film. The titular shadow who is a a character who doubles somebody else, um, as well as the princess other army veterans and so on and so forth. They're used kind of as chess pieces. Yeah. And really complex court intrigue, you know, who's on whose side, who's, you know, kind of showing their cards at what point in time, right. That you're, you're never a convoluted plot from the very get go. Oh yeah. And it, it leads you in with very little, there's a couple title cards to kind of catch you up, but really it does almost nothing to, (laughs) to help you acclimate to what's happening. But it, in the end, I don't find it a very confusing movie. You just need to give it right. some time to kind of to catch on. Well, so what what do you think's going on with this? Why go from this really saturated embrace of color to this 
I mean, it's it's pared down, but it, like you said, I think it's important to point out it's actually not shot in black and white. It's shot in color, but this completely desaturated black, white, gray world that we're presented with. There are two artistic references happening here. First off is to Chinese landscape painting, uh, mm-hmm. which are called shan shui, like mountain and water. These are the type of paintings that you'll see where it's these mountains that kind of come out of a mist right and then there's just there's just kind of nods towards there being a larger world out there but really all we're getting is these hyper stylized mountains but it's also paired with what's called sumie paintings in japan or uh, ink wash paintings in in larger eastern asia which are these paintings that only use black ink So we get a lot of shots, like landscape shots, or at least landscape backgrounds on this film that look like a mixture of these two styles, right? Um, So the film is positioning itself as almost like a mythical tale by using these references to East Asian painting styles. Yeah. It's interesting, too, of course, that we you know, from the get-go, visually, we're being presented this idea of dualities, right? Uh, Black and white, shadow and reality, male and female, yin and yang, um, you know, ultimately. And this kind of dualism is interesting because it's undercut in a lot of ways by the fact that everyone, by the end of the story, everyone is morally compromised, right? That there is no black and white in a lot of ways. Yeah, there is no black and white. So one of the most uh, iconic images from the film is, of course, the battles that they have on the symbol of yin and yang, right? right? The Tai Chi symbol as it's translated in the subtitles. And the Tai Chi Tu in Chinese, the yin-yang symbol is, is misleading in some ways because, yes, it is a symbol of dualism, but because the yin and the yang are both inscribed in the same circle, it's mm-hmm. also commenting on the mistakes that we have through dualism, right? About how there really is a balance, even when you want to see it in blacks and whites, right? Yeah. That these are both, they're both circumscribed into the same whole. And so the characters shows both sides to themselves, right? The king presents himself as kind of a drunkard, kind of silly, but really he's very conniving and he knows what's happening, especially with the larger twists of the movie, right? Right. So yeah, it's it's interesting because it presents itself, as, most characters present themselves in one way, but you realize that they're actually doing two things at once. Yeah. Okay. That makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you a question about, and I know this is something that you've thought about in other contexts, about the performance of femininity in this, in this film. Because there's two things that stand out to me. One, of course, is that the, the entire film is framed by a woman, that is the, the wife of the commander, looking through a door And we get this scene at the very beginning, and then it's repeated at the end, right? So in in essence, everything has has gone back in time to catch us back up, saying that she's about to make the most important choice of her life. And so that's our framing. It's her choice is what's framing the entire movie. And then within the movie, one of the things that's driving the, the actions, so to speak, is the fact that they have developed a new kind of fighting technique 
uh, that draws on feminine moves, right? With these umbrellas. And they, uh, they kind of make a, this over-exaggerated, you know, kind of, I don't know, feminine walk. I, I don't, I don't know what, how exactly to, you know, to describe it. It you know, becomes integral for, you know, for deflecting the, you know, the, the uber masculinity, you know, of the, the warrior that they're going to be going up against. What do you make of this performance of the feminine? Yeah, it's really interesting movie, as, as you pointed out, with the cyclical nature, right? Because the last title card that we get before we see what is both the first and last shots of the film says she is about to make a choice, right? Or that she's, oh, I think it says she's faced with the most difficult choice of her life or something to that effect. I think, again, that the film is presenting what is ostensibly a dualistic view of the sexes, but it's actually doing something else with it. For example, the princess who is the one who points out that she's confused about what is true and what is false in the film, right? And Mm -hmm. she's going to be married as a concubine to a person from another kingdom. But she is also the one who sneaks onto the team that invades the city and dresses herself up like a man to do so, right? Mm -hmm. So it presents these binaries at first, But once you look a little bit deeper, it's showing that there's actually a mixture going on in every instance. I think also the example of the types of fighting that happens in this film. Of course, we get our really famous wire work, Chinese action type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what you also get in this film is some really hyper-realistic kind of brawling, right? Um, That's mixed in. There's, There's a lot of unstylized people punching each other right? Yeah. Uh, without any beauty to it. But you also get the beautiful action scenes with the, the stunning visual effects as well, right? Um, yeah. And they're, they just kind of moves back and forth between the two. I guess it, it queers action cinema in a way that I think also mirrors the way that it's doing it gender-wise as well. Yeah. Well, Dewey, thank you so much for being with us to talk about uh, Shadow. Oh, yeah. Thank you. With me now to talk about Hunt for the Wilder People is podcast regular Marilar Oscarson, the Assistant Director of International Cinema. Welcome again, Marilar. Hey, it's good to be back. So, Marilar, tell me about Hunt for the Wilder People. What do you see as being some of the main themes going on in what, on the one hand, is a kind of a light comedy, but I think there's some deeper dimensions to it, right? Oh, for sure. Like, for instance, the theme of love and being accepted and belonging, whether it is a community or a family so all this are things that Ricky Baker has to deal with in, in many ways. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that there's a parallel that we can draw between this film and a lot of other films that actually we've seen in different in different ways, different manifestations of international cinema. The one that comes most readily to mind is uh, Cordieta's Shoplifters, where we're exploring alternative family structures. So Ricky Baker finds himself with Bella and Hack here who are not his natural parents. And in fact, it's not a natural fit in any way, shape or form, except for the fact that Bella seems to have this incredible capacity to love. And it's kind of putting that question out there, you know, what's ultimately better you know, to have these biological, you know, relationships that don't have a lot of meaning or non-biological, artificial kinds of relationships that are, are much more fulfilling, right? 
And Bella really understands Ricky and and tells him, you know, I'm sorry it took us so long to find you. It's it's a very touching thing. And she has the way to show him how much she loves him by setting him free as well. And making a joke of him trying to run away and telling him, hey, make sure you're back by breakfast. I mean, she's just so loving in a very freeing way for for Ricky. It's it's not a love that's like making him do or not do things because uh, so far he's been described and we hear it in the words of Paula, the social worker, that he all the things that he does that are like some kind of menace to a society or others or that are just judged as being bad and we don't see anything like this with with Bella who completely accepts him. Yeah, she doesn't let his actions kind of define him. I, I like how you put it. She gives him this freedom to, you know, to be himself and to find himself in some kind of way. Yeah, the um, best is the birthday song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the epic birthday song. You know, it's yeah. interesting. This is, um, they, I understand that they recorded that song, you know, because for a long time there was this restriction on using happy birthday as a song in movies because you'd have to pay rights. Uh, that's mm-hmm. actually since been overturned, but when they made the film that was before that had happened. And so they had to find some kind of alternative and like, what a fantastic alternative. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I think that Ricky coming to the farm is significant as well. And, and this of course is one of the other main themes of the film, this idea of the wilder people. He comes to the, the farm as a city kid, right? And in a lot of ways, I think that we can kind of read him as the, the modern urban individual that is cut mm-hmm. off in a lot of ways from the things that provide life for us, the things that we depend on, that we go mm-hmm. to the supermarket to get instead of providing ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, he's as this juvenile delinquent who's bounced around from home to home. He doesn't have things that connect him anywhere. And this is part of the problem. It's presented as part of the problem. He comes to the farm and not only does he, is he loved for the first time, is he kind of accepted for who he is, but he also encounters dead things, as he says, right? That, you know, why are there so many dead things, you know, around here? And of course, he's always been dependent on dead things. We all are dependent on on things that die to, you know, to make the food that, you know, that we eat or the products that we, you know, that we use in, in daily life, but we're sheltered from that. And yeah, here he's not, he's forced nicely, to confront it. Nicely packaged. You don't, you don't connect the white of the chicken uh, whites with the animal. It's just too nicely packaged in the, in the grocery store. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is an important part of him becoming connected as an individual. So there's a parallel between this relationship that he's forming with Bella and then eventually Heck and this relationship he's forming with his environment, right? Uh, The whole notion of the knack, right? That this sense that you have when you're out in an environment and you know how to function and how to operate, that this is something that we're not born with, that we have to cultivate and develop. And so the knack on the one hand is the know-how of how to survive in the bush, but the knack also is to know how to survive in life, right? To to find connection between That's right. things. Like his knack is more like the skook's life, right? Uh, something cool, spunky, um, like good looking, gangster-like. And he, he keeps like coming back to this style of life that he knows. And Heck is always trying to just teach him something else and show him something else. It's interesting how... Uh, Ricky has different ways to process life that as well he's sharing with Heck. Like, for, for instance, the haikus that um, he's always 
making up to process his emotions. So I think we we can see that there is a big divide between the two characters. They do not like each other and they are so different from each other. But at some point, the knack and the kooks, the skooks, sorry, become kind of like one way that they define together in a winning relationship that becomes more, more symbiotic. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, that it, there's a kind of hybrid position that's that's worked out in the end where the knack isn't just about nature, it's about something else, right? And and likewise, you know, Heck comes to see himself as needing to integrate into society another kind of way in that he's choosing this new family relationship at the end that's going to be, you know, the idea is that there's a new way forward then. And it's true that this film is a, it's a road trip right? It's a road film, but but without a road and just a path that they are going to define at every step. And um, you mentioned that Ricky was, was disconnected from um, nature and becomes one with nature in, in so many ways. And uh, an interesting thing is that at first he complains about all the bugs and he stepped in poop and there's so much dirt all around him, right? And all the dead things. And then at some point, He's going to go hunt for food. And what does he do? This kind of like primal kind of tribal thing where he takes dirt, wet dirt, and he puts it on his cheeks. And all of a sudden he looks like this warrior who is going to just act in nature and to survive. Yeah. Well, he very much, you know, this idea of the wilder people, right? The, you know, the journey that's going to define them, right? They're playing off of wildebeest and the, you know, kind of the long uh, migrations that the wildebeest come and that this is, it's the journey that's, you know, that's going to affect them as they're coming into contact with this kind of new existence. And it's this contrast between the, you know, being in the, in the bush and needing to be aware of the way that you're connected to different sorts of things going on around you to, to save your life. And the contrast to this is Paula Hall and kind of modern existence, the, uh, what Psycho Sam refers to as, for, you know, form fillers, right? That you, that everything is about, you have to fill out forms all the time, right? You have to fit into these neat pre-established categories. And the categories are all about kind of reducing existence, kind of abstracting existence in a certain kind of way so that it can fit into nice categorical sorts of, well, you know, into categories, right? Into these pre-established sorts of ideas, and of course, this runs exactly contrary to the hybrid position. There is not a place for heck in society. There's not a place for someone like Ricky Ricky Baker. And it's interesting that ultimately they choose to return to society though, right? But changed, right? Both of them. Yeah. And if we can talk, so the form fillers, it's like there's no box for these people and they don't they don't fit. And, and all efforts to make them fit is just an effort to alienate them and to re- refute them and to refuse them and to to ignore who who they really are but there's something interesting about the language um the so the dialogues in in the film on that topic that they start talking like speaking each other's languages so not only do we have now Hector who is forming a haiku that's very very touching so Ricky's way to process things but then we have Ricky who is using one of Hector's word magistical and to express yeah. something very meaningful so not only do they connect I mean on on other levels but but I I thought that was interesting to see how the language and the dialogues were um I mean the language between those two characters is is really a mark of of their successful relationship. Yeah, I think so. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about the Wilder People. My pleasure. To round out this episode of our Week in Review, we have joining us Professor Scott Miller from the Japanese program. He's a former co-director of International Cinema and is currently working as the Dean of the College of Humanities and is thus also the grand patron of International Cinema. Thank you so much for being with us here on the podcast, Scott. Uh, Thank you very much, but I hope I do not sound patronizing. (laughs) Never. I can't think of a better person, better situated to have on the podcast to talk about ramen heads and that you bring together both an expertise in Japanese culture, but as well a fairly refined palate, or at least a palate that knows food. Well, that's true. And I've eaten many a ramen in Japan and in very few in America. I find that we tend not to do them very well here. And so uh, my experiences in Japan trump all kinds of experiences here in America. No, I, I can imagine. I think for most of our viewers that their you know, experience with ramen you know, comes in a, in a cellophane package and it goes in the microwave. So this is something completely, completely different. What were your overall impressions of the, of the film is in terms of how it represents this, uh, I mean, both this food, but maybe you know, more significantly, this, the culture around food in, in Japan? Well, one of the things I was impressed from the very beginning of the film because I could tell just from the language used, both in Japanese and the translation's done very well, the lyrical language suggested that this is an elegy about ramen in Japan. And it it includes a history lesson in the middle, but the beginning to be walking down uh, a back alley uh, shop area in Japan that happens to be underneath the train line, and you're walking down to see the entrance to a ramen shop and the language that's spoken there is just so evocative of the role that ramen plays, both emotional and social in Japan. Uh, once I saw that, I was hooked. I thought, I know that this person is really thinking and is giving us something more than just, let's see how weird ramen can be in Japan. Food documentaries can become a little bit crazy sometimes, but this one I think was very well balanced. I really enjoyed it. So that's my initial impression. Yeah, Mark Yamada in our preview show of this, he pointed out how different this documentary would have been if an American had made it. An American had gone to Japan and kind of looked at at ramen culture from an outsider's perspective. Um, it's really important that this was made by a Japanese filmmaker and you get a, a very different a different look and feel kind of what you're what you're talking about. No question. And that's very obvious all the way through. In fact, uh, some of the things as I was watching it, and I was I was trying my best to ignore subtitles and listen only to the Japanese, I thought, wow, this is really done well within the Japanese context. It addresses its audience very well. The way that it brings the three ramen masters together for an anniversary celebration at the end as a kind of denouement, I thought that was that was very Japanese. It might not have been the way American filmmakers would do it, but... Mm-hmm. In, a Jap- in sort of the Japanese narrative arc that worked very, very well. All things came together so beautifully there that I thought this is this is a masterpiece. I was really glad to get to watch it. So something that struck me about this is that ramen as a food is not a, it's not kind of old cuisine, right? It's not, it's not shishi food. It's not, you know, you don't pay for the $500 plate of ramen anywhere. And so there's this interesting genre in which they're working 
within in regards to food, right? That it needs to remain a kind of comfort food is, is how we might talk about that in the United States or, or a working man's food. But they're pushing the boundary of it without ever trying to jump up to, to something else, right? Yes, I think that's a very fair characterization of it. And it's actually voiced by several of the characters or the interviewees in the in the documentary itself. There's one particular ramen maker who, he's the one who cooks in an oven that's still made out of clay and, you know, is right. be a cultural treasure. Um, and he he's the one that introduces the idea that ramen are basically food to fill you up so you can go off and work and rebuild Japan after the war. And I think that sort of uh, working class roots of ramen is something that gives it both its the nostalgia people hold for it in addition to its its survivability. It it tends to recast, as you can see, it's been recast in many different forms over the last uh, half century. And the documentary does a good job of saying this this has the potential to continue to transform and change. But as you say, Chip, it's probably not to jump up into the area of cuisine, but rather transform for the sake of Japanese who are enjoying this as both a, a retro kind of food and also a food of the here and now. Yeah. I mean, it interestingly reminds me a little bit of, you know, and forgive the reference, but uh, Ratatouille, uh, the Pixar film from a few years ago, that mm-hmm. this is the move they make at the end, right? Where they kind of subvert the idea of fine dining, you know, that this cuisine that's, you know, outside the reach of normal people um, by bringing back the dish Ratatouille, which, you know, similarly in France, you know, this is not a, this is not a fancy dish. This is a peasant dish. You know, this is a kind of dish to, to make you feel good and remind you of home and and uh, they're similarly kind of working in that in that kind of area. Yes, and in fact, um, as I was watching it, and as I was thinking about this idea of it being the food that fueled Japan's modern uh, miracle after the war, its recovery from the war, I realized that in watching the the, the men in the shop work, the owner of Tomita, the the main character, as he's training an apprentice and he's really quite harsh with the apprentice sends him outside tells him you know pay better attention and so on i realized that in many ways ramen is simply a vehicle to allow a sort of japanese mode of of apprenticeship and craftsmanship to emerge it happens to be with the ramen that's the right that's the the mode but What's going on, as one learns, as he did, Tomita himself, he went and studied with a master. He devoted himself to the master. He, he watched, he observed, he kind of stole the secrets, he tasted, he figured things out, and then he opened his own shop. And that story goes back hundreds of years. That's sort of the mode that artists in Japan, artists, artisans, and craftsmen, go, they undergo that mode of apprenticeship in order to learn their craft. And in the process, they don't just learn how to produce ramen. They learn how to put themselves into it. And you kind of see that in the, the motif that Tomita talks about in his workers, his apprentices themselves. Mirror that when they say, every day I'm fighting myself. I'm fighting a yeah. battle with myself. We're, we're trying to improve. And that, what are they improving? It's craft. And of course, how you define success, how you define improvement varies. It could be in the way that you change your sauce. 
there's got to be room for novelty, but there's also got to be a lot of sort of uh, ritual and custom and tradition. And I think ramen in its simplicity of the ingredients and its kind of working class roots really does give Japanese ramen shop masters free reign to sort of exert that dominant craftsmanship that is so much a part of everything that happens in Japan and has done so historically, particularly in the field of art. I, I really like that idea of, of a food, a, you know, a dish being able to embody so many elements of the culture, right? It's not just the ingredients, you know, that are kind of presented before you in a bowl or a plate, but that there is, you know, th this entire way of seeing the world that's that's encapsulated, you know, everything from, you know, the way you're talking about the relationship with apprentices. And I thought that that was interesting. There seemed to be a kind of a gendered dynamic that's going on here, that it's almost exclusively men. They did show one woman yeah. um, that there's a kind of hierarchy in, in society. Yeah. No, it's it. Uh, it has all those elements, um, and yet, what I think to me, some of the most satisfying moments were not necessarily just watching the craftsmen at work, the the chefs at work, but it was watching the customers. Yeah, and seeing how they drain their bowl, and that's that's what you watch, is you watch the customer, and if they drain the bowl to the bottom, it says they've been successful, as a, the chef's successful because you know, they've made this something they can't resist. Oh, that that's great. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for, for being with us and uh, for sharing a few thoughts on ramen. No problem. I invite anyone, uh, if they're ever in Japan, eat as many ramen as you can. They'll all be different. <laughs> well, that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope that you are social distancing well and taking advantage of International Cinema's temporary online format. If you still need to get signed up for the rest of IC streaming program, you can go to our website at ic.byu.edu to get information. If you have any feedback for us on the podcast, we invite you to contact us at intcinema, that's int-cinema, at byu.edu. From the Booth is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU, which is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. Thank you to Jojo Hegstrom-Pratt, our sound engineer, the BYU College of Humanities, as well as the staff and the Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Watch for our preview episode in which we'll tell you some things to look for in the films coming up. But until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your eyes open for great film. <laughs>